Well, I invite you now to turn in your Bible to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a story today and again next week at the lives of two men that intersected here in 2 Kings chapter 5. And as you're thinking about this uh, story that we're going to be looking at in this man by the name of Naaman, let me mention a contemporary person many of you have heard of. It's a movie star actress by the name of Michelle Pfeiffer. Now, there was a, a, a magazine cover that had her picture on it a few years back. And what the title of this uh, Glamour magazine said is, what Michelle Pfeiffer needs is dot, dot, dot. And as you open the cover, it said absolutely nothing. And it showed her picture there. Now, it turns out after a little bit of investigation by a reporter that Michelle Pfeiffer actually needed something. Over $1,500 worth of touch-up work by a cover artist. (laughs) The invoice listed such things as cleaning up her complexion, softening eye and smile lines, adding color to lips, trimming her chin, removing necklines, adding blush to her cheek, removing stray hair, adding forehead and hair to the top of her head. On and on the list goes. Now, on the surface, this beautiful movie star looked like she needed absolutely nothing. But the reality is, behind the scenes, she needed a lot of work. And I share that with you because as we look at 2 Kings chapter 5 today, and this man by the name of Naaman that is mentioned there, at the beginning, it looks like he needs absolutely nothing. But as we go deeper into this story, we find that he needed some work done in his own life behind the scenes. And what Naaman will need done is more than a touch-up bit of work on an issue of leprosy that we're going to read about here. He had a deeper issue in his life that God saw and was at work, uh, working to change. As we look at this man today, I want you to look at your own life. I want you to look at your life today and ask yourself, what do you need? What kind of behind-the-scenes work, what kind of deeper issue maybe is God working on in your own life this morning that you need some work with? 2 Kings 5.1 tells us, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior. Now here is a brief but impressive resume. Naaman is a man's man. He's the commander of the army of Aram. He's a valiant warrior. We're told that he's instrumental in bringing his country victory. Now, at the time, Israel and Aram were enemy nations. And it's interesting to see that God is the one giving this enemy pagan commander uh, success. He's bringing victory to his country. Something that's true in all of our lives is the successes and abilities we have come from the Lord, whether we recognize that or not. Now, not only was Naaman a great military man, but we see that he had the respect of the king and the people. Here's a guy who's rich, respected, powerful, has the second highest position in the nation, and he looks like he needs absolutely nothing until we look at the end of verse 1 where it says he was also a leper. Now, leprosy is a disease that attacks the nerves and other things. We, we think of leprosy as maybe those pictures we've seen back in the day of Mother Teresa in Calcutta 
with, with people with bandaged and, and maybe some fingers or toes that are, that are missing, but it's a disease that attacks uh, the nerves of the body. And over time, what happens is the, the body is injured over and over as the individual loses feeling. And through the injuries and infection and other things that happen, they begin to lose fingers and toes and extremities and other things and eventually can lead to death. And so here we're reading about this valiant warrior, this man who would wield a sword for the, the king of Aram. And what we're told is he has a disease that in time is going to cause the loss of feeling and maybe even the, the actual hand that will hold this sword. In time, he's going to lose his ability and the king is going to lose his top commander. And ultimately, this man Naaman will lose his life. Now, as bleak as this picture begins to appear, we see that a, a ray of hope breaks into the story because verses 2 through 5 go on to tell us this. Now, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and he told his master, the king, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and he took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. Now the Arameans are this enemy that have been crossing over into the Israel, crossing the border, and as they've been raiding, they've been taking not only the goods of the, the villages and towns they've attacked, but they've been carrying captives back, including a, a little girl who becomes an indentured servant, a, a forced slave in the home where Naaman is the commander. Now apparently he's a kinder man because this, this little girl has some affection uh, for him. And she repays this evil of being carried away in ca to captivity with mercy. And she says, you know, there's a, a person in Israel who can help. There's this prophet in Samaria who can, who can heal you. Naaman is desperate, so he goes to the king and he says, I've, I've heard about this guy in Israel who can cure me. Now, the king is desperate as well. He doesn't want to lose his, his best uh, man and his, his top commander, his bodyguard. And he says, look, we're going to send you into Israel and we're going to load you down with so many riches they can't refuse you. And so we're told that he takes 10 talents of silver. This, this would have been equal to about uh, 200 years, 200 years worth of wages for the average person. Now, beyond... 200 years worth of wages, he comes with this gold that equals about 150 pounds. This is a princely sum that shows that Naaman was literally worth his weight in gold to the king. Now, he also brings 10 changes of clothes, and we read that and we go, big deal. Well, that was a big deal because clothing was very rare in, in this time. You'll recall that as Jesus was being crucified on the cross, we're, we're told that the soldiers were gambling over the torn and bloody garments of the Lord because most people own just one set of clothes their entire life. And here he comes with 10 changes. And this isn't your just off the rack stuff. This is better than designer label. This is one king sending the best to another king trying to buy the healing of this man. Now, as he comes with, with all of this stuff, verses 6 through 7 says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, 
And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes. And he said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure this man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Now, tearing your clothes was a, a sign of deep mourning and distress. I just told you how valuable clothing was. And to tear it was a way of mourning. And what's happening is the king of Israel says, do you see what is happening? This foreign king knows that no one can cure a person of leprosy. Does he think I'm God? You know what he really wants to do is he's seeking an opportunity to start an all-out war. Remember, there's already been these cross-border raids that are taking place. And when you look back at history, you see just how, how uh, difficult the situation, and, and it was just on, on the edge of all-out warfare because the king of Israel at this time is a man by the name of Joram. He's the son of the king of Ahab. King Ahab was this wicked king in Israel, and he had this son, Joram, who took the, the throne. First Kings 20 tells us that King Ahab had been at war with a guy by the name of Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Aram at this time. And so what's happened is the new king of Israel's father had been at war with this, this king. And the war had, it's kind of like North and South Korea today, where the war has never officially been over. And what he's saying is we're, we're on the verge of all-out war. We can't even keep the enemy from these incursions across the border. And you see what he's doing. He knows nobody can heal this guy. And so it's just going to give him the pretext to say, you wouldn't help, and he's going to come in, and we're going to lose. Now, as the Israelite king is there in the palace having a pity party, it's interrupted, as we see in verse 8. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, remember when Joram first read these words, he said, am I God that I can cure leprosy? And the answer, of course, is no. But there's a prophet in Israel who says there is a God, one true God who can help in this situation. Now, if you're wondering, why didn't the king of Israel seek God's help? Again, when you look back at history and remember the story, Ahab and Jezebel were the ones who had turned the nation of Israel away from following Jehovah, Yahweh, the true God of Israel, to follow the pagan god Baal, who was the one that the foreign gods, uh, the foreign god that they were being worshipped in these other foreign countries. And so if you look at the story and the animosity that's taking place in 2 Kings chapter 3, We read about a time where the king of Moab went to war against Israel and Judah. These were the the nation of Israel had split into the northern and southern kingdoms. And then there was another king by the name of Edom, uh, the nation of Edom that was aligned. So you have these three kings going against this foreign king from Moab. And as they're about to fight each other, they know they're going to lose. Now, the king of Judah was still following the true God, Yahweh. And so this is how the story is. The setting of the background in 2 Kings three eleven through 12 tells us this. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? You see, the king of Judah is in the Israelite territory. So he says to the Israelite king, Don't you guys have a, a prophet here that we can talk to 
so that Jehovah will tell us what's going on? And one of the kings of Israel's servants answered and said, well, there's, there's Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He's here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, the, the really great prophet. And Jehoshaphat said, well, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So these guys show up to Elisha and, and they're inquiring of help. It says in 2 Kings 3.13 what happens. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, imagine that there's three kings here. And of course, this guy, Joram, he's kind of hanging back. And, and Elisha looks beyond the other two right at him. And he said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Go to Baal, where Jezebel and Ahab said that was the true God. So, so this guy, as he's sitting in the palace, he goes, well, he's not going to help me, you know. So what happens is this guy shows up. Now, in that story, Elisha did end up helping, but only because the king of Judah was there and Jehovah overrode the king of Moab. So now as we come back to our story, Elisha sends word and says, hey, king, send Naaman out here to my house where he will see that there is a true God. There is the true God, Jehovah, not this pagan God Baal that you continue to chase after. Now verse 9 tells us, so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Now, next week, when we get into looking at what happens with the servant Gehazi, we're going to see that they're, they're living in a little shack that's too small for the prophets. And so they're out here in the backwoods in the sticks area. And it would be like the presidential motorcade suddenly rolling up in front of your house. And everybody comes running out going, what is going on? I mean, here's Naaman this commander of this, this foreign power with his chariots and his army and these, this wagon loaded down with treasure, and he rolls up in front of this little shotgun shack in the back in the sticks. Now, you would think that Elisha, who is in there, would come running out and go, oh, you great master. But look at what happens in the story. As the entourage arrives, he doesn't even come outside. Verse 10 tells us, and Elisha sent a messenger to him. He sends one of the servants out. And he said to him, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now, put yourself in the place of Naaman for a moment. You've just rolled up with all these banners and glory, and you're standing there, and you're, you're waiting for this guy to come out, and instead this servant comes out and he tells you to go jump in a river. That's what the text is telling us. Now Naaman is stunned for a moment. And then he's furious. That's it? That's it? I've come all the way from Aram to this puny little kingdom that we could crush? Now when I went to the palace, things were done right. The king was shaking. Everybody was running around. They were all worried. They're deferring to me. They're showing great honor. And you send out a servant. And he tells me to go jump in a river. Now, it says Naaman was furious in verse 11. And he went away. I want you to stop for a moment and ask yourself, have you ever felt like Naaman? Have you ever been angry and disappointed at God? 
Have you ever thought this is how things are supposed to happen and, and, and none of it goes the way you thought it would? And how did you feel? How did you respond to God? Were you angry with him? Were you disappointed? Did you say, that's it, I'm done? I'm done with that church thing. I'm done with God. Now, here's Naaman. He's angry. He's furious. Things are not going the way he thought they would. It's a little bit like a young man who was trying to become a missionary. This guy had sought God. He had gone through all the steps. He had applied to a missions agency. He had filled out all the character references. He had answered all the theological questions. He had been raising support. He was ready to go, but the missions agency said, before you can become appointed as a missionary, there's just one thing that has to happen. You have to have this interview with this, this foreign missionary veteran who is home. All of our missionaries go through him, and if he gives approval, then you will be appointed. And so the man says, great, I'm ready, and he receives word that he needs to be at this missionary's house at 5 a.m. promptly the next morning. Now it's a cold day. It's snowing outside. There's ice and snow on the ground. But this young man, he gets up, he dresses, he he trudges through the snow, and he comes to this missionary's house. And as he's about to knock on the door, there's a note hanging there on the door. And it says to this man, I want you to come inside. There's a bench right inside the door. Sit down and wait for me. Now the young man walks in the door. He closes it quietly behind him, and he sits on this bench in this dark house. And he's sitting there. And he's waiting and he's waiting for two hours. He's gotten up at 5 a.m. He's trudged through the snow. He's there and he's waiting and he's going, what is going on? Now as he's kind of half dozing in and out of sleep, suddenly he's startled awake by an alarm that goes off down the hall. And, and he, he peers down the darkness of this hallway and he sees his bedroom door that is open. And, and suddenly he notices the missionary is getting out of bed. This guy's been waiting for two hours on this cold, hard bench in the hallway. And this missionary finally gets up and he, as the missionary throws on his robe, he walks by rubbing sleep from his eye. He doesn't even acknowledge the young man. He walks into the kitchen and he starts a pot of coffee. And the young man's thinking, oh good, I'm, I'm, I'm shivering, this will be great. And the, the missionary comes walking out holding a cup of coffee and he stands there looking at this young man. He doesn't even offer him a cup. And he says, I want you to answer some questions. What's today? Well, it's Saturday, sir. What's two plus two? It's four. Great. Thanks for coming. And then the missionary walks back to the kitchen. And the young man's sitting there in stunned silence. And the missionary turns to him and he says, you can go. Now the guy gets up and he leaves. He's confused. He's come all the way over there. He's been told he's got to have this final interview, but he quietly collects his things and he leaves. Friends, how would you feel? If that were you, how would you react to that? What would you be thinking at that moment? Well, he gets a report from the missions board and it says, congratulations, you've been received. And he said, here is the report from your interview. This veteran missionary says, this man will make a fine missionary. He's willing to deny his own comforts, coming through the bitter cold to meet with me. He's prompt, arriving at the scheduled time of 5 a.m. He is patient and forgiving, sitting for two hours in the dark and does not respond negatively when treated poorly. He is a humble man, willing to answer simple questions without complaining. 
Now, you see, in this particular test, even though the man wasn't very happy about it, I'm sure, at the time, what he didn't know is this veteran missionary knew the things that were needed to be successful on the missions field. And he says, here is a man who possessed those qualities. And there was a test that was designed to draw these things out. The one giving the test knew what was really needed. And friends, there are times that things happen in your own life where God is giving a test or the circumstances that are involved in a situation that you or I may not like what is happening. What is happening is God says, I know what is going on. I know what your need is. I know what this situation requires. And I'm putting you through a process to draw out or to change or to develop you. You see, Naaman was a man who needed healing. Naaman was a man who didn't understand what was going on. He, he said he wanted to be healed, so that's what God offered to him. He said, you want to be healed? Great. Go jump in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. It says, your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. Now Naaman said, behold, I thought he will surely come out. And he will stand and he will call upon the name of the Lord as God. He will wave his hand over the place and he will cure the leper. You see, Naaman says, hey, I saw this on TV once. There's one of those faith healers, right? With all the flash. The guy was going in Jesus' name, you know? Didn't know I could do that, did you? I can't either. And he says, that's what I want. I want the show. I, I want the flash. And what God said is, go splash in a river. Go humble yourself. Go do something that nobody will see in a backwoods area that is below you. You see, Naaman was this great commander. Naaman was this guy who showed up with his Gucci bags filled with gold. He said, I've got enough money here that nobody, nobody can turn me down. And he said, just in case I have to earn my healing, just in case there has to be some valiant, you know, quest that I go on. He says, I'm the guy. I've got the letter from the king of Aram right here to show it. I'm the guy who's the valiant warrior. I'm the guy who can do anything. You give me a task, I will earn my healing. I will buy it. I will earn it. You just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. And God said, okay, Naaman, I need you to humble yourself. And I need you to go to this little river called the Jordan and go splash in it. Now, look at verse 12. He says, Naaman says, Are not the Abana and the far, far, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went in a rage. The Greeks called the Abana the golden river. This beautiful, pure, flowing stream. Have you ever been to the Jordan River? I've been there. The Jordan River is this muddy backwater river. Yeah, they've got a nice place. They've kind of dug out and you, know, you can be baptized in the Jordan. But when you look at the Jordan, it's, it's usually a dirty, muddy river. <laughs> and Naaman goes, are you for real? 
I've come all the way from Aram where we have pure, clear water, and you want me to go to the Jordan? Now, what you need to do when you look at a map and you see where uh, the prophet's house is and where the Jordan is, it was about a 25-mile ride by chariot. So where he is when he's standing at the house of Elisha and he's told, hey, load back up in your chariot, and I want you to go travel for 20-plus miles to go to this river and go dip in it. That's a long ride in that day. He would have had a lot of time to think about this. And he says, no, 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 see, God, this this isn't how it works. I know how it works. Remember, I saw the guy on TV. You're supposed to wave your hand over me. You're supposed to do this big declaration, and then it's going to happen. And and he says, no, here's the instructions. Here's the prescription. I want you to go fill it and I want you to go home and I want you to take the 10 days of antibiotics and I want you to go through the whole process and, and, and you're going, no, no, this is nuts. This isn't how it works. Have you ever done that with God? God gives you a prescription and, and you look at it and you go, I'm just going to put this on the shelf because this isn't how it works. You know, we have the prescription. We have the Bible, God's word. And he says, these are the things I want you to do in your life. And we take it, maybe we even go through the drive-thru and we fill the, the bottle and we take it and we put it on our shelf and we say, there it is, there's the prescription. But we don't follow through and take it. And then we go back to the doctor and we say, hey, that medicine you gave me, it's not working. And the doctor says, well, did you take all 10 days? Did you finish the court? Well, I didn't take any of it. What do you mean? Why? I filled it. It's on my shelf. I'm looking at it every day. And the doctor goes, it doesn't work unless you follow through and take it. And it's the same thing with the Bible. So, so many of us have God's word and we, we carry it with us and we set it on our bookshelf or it's right there on the end table at home and we look at it every day, but we're not taking the medicine, so to speak. We're not opening God's word and not just going through it, but letting it go through us and doing what it is that God has called on us to do. You see, that's Naaman. He's been told what to do. And, and he says, well, if it had been some great task that was worthy of who I am, I would have done it. But instead, you send out a servant and you tell me to do some insignificant, lowly task. And because it's a blow to his ego, that's why he flies into a rage. Now look at verse 13. Then his servants came near and they spoke to him. And they said, my father... Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? Now, here's the battle. He's, he's already made this grandstanding show. His ego is hurt. He's told everybody, I'm not going to do this. Let's get in our chariots and go home. And they come to him and they say, Master, look, we're here already. Let's just try it. I'm not going to do it. Amen. Come on. If it had been some great task, you know you would have done it. Why why not? So he goes, okay, fine. You drive. (laughs) And they get to the Jordan. Now, again, there's another battle, right? Because he's standing there, and what does he have to do now? Ever seen one of these guys? I mean, there's one of those helmets he's wearing. He's got the big plume that tells everybody, I'm the guy. And he has to take it off. 
and he, and, and he puts it down in the chariot. Now he's still standing there in all of his shiny armor and you know all the entourages around and all the soldiers and he starts taking off the, the pieces of armor. And he's piling up these shiny things. Well, now he's standing there in his fine linen robe. He's got to drop that too. Now he's in his underwear. Because this is stupid. He's looking down at the muddy water. You, you want me to go down there? Amen. Just... So he goes down. He gets to the water. He walks in. And he's thinking the whole time. In turn, this is dumb. This isn't going to accomplish anything. Master, they said seven times under the water. So the guy goes under the water once. He looks. It's still here. It's one. Goes under again and again. Four times, five times, six times. He looks. He goes, this isn't working. I'm getting dirty, not clean. But then one more time. One more time he goes under the water. And he goes under the water. And verse 14 says, His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. This this battle-scarred, rugged man who I'm sure had cuts and marks and, and... battle scars from all these days of fighting. Suddenly he has a cover girl complexion. His skin is made like that of a baby. The outward appearance matches the change inwardly. You see, here was Naaman, this guy who had it all except he had a pride issue. And God said, what you really need to be healed of is your pride. You really need to be humbled. And friends, all of us here today are just like Naaman. All of us here have a a sin issue in our life, a sin issue of leprosy, because we're sinners. And the Bible says that as sinners, we are ultimately going to face a penalty called death. It says the wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 tells us. We are all lepers. We are all sinners. It doesn't matter how great we think we are. It doesn't matter what position, what power, what our bank accounts look like, how pretty we are, how much of anything we have in this world. Our resumes all end with the words, we are lepers. We are all sinners. We are all ultimately facing a death sentence. And many of us come to God and we say, God, look, look at how great I am. Let me earn my way to heaven. Let me work my way to you by doing great things. Let me buy my way into heaven. How much do I need to give? What are the things you want me to do? But as Matthew 18 tells us, as he did to Naaman, it says, unless we humble ourselves as a little child, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, it doesn't matter how great we think we are. We all have a problem. And God says to each and every one of us, I have a cure for your problem. And it requires you acknowledging you're a sinner and you humbling yourself and you stripping yourself of everything you think you can bring me. You can't buy anything from me. You can't buy your salvation. You can't earn your salvation by how great and and powerful and how many mighty deeds you think you can do. He says, there's just one thing I need from you. 
I need you to humble yourself, to acknowledge you're a sinner, and then in obedience turn to me in faith. In this case, he tells Naaman, I want you to dip seven times in the water. And as Naaman starts to wade into the water, he's thinking, this is nuts, it's not going to work. But as he does what God asks, he comes up the seventh time and he is changed. From the inside out, he is healed. Now, having been healed, he runs up the bank and he says to everybody, we've got to go back. We've got to go back to the prophet's house. Verse 15 tells us, when he returned to the man of God with all his company, and he came and he stood before him, and he said, behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Notice the change. He's no longer this mighty, proud warrior from Aram, but he says, I'm a servant of the living God. And he says, I just want God to have a gift. Verse 16 says, but Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, you see, giving those gifts as gratitude was was very uh, appropriate. But remember, Naaman had showed up with all these riches. The king had said, hey, look, whatever it takes, we will send it to get what you need. And so as he shows up and he says, here, he he starts to unload the silver and the gold and the garments and, you know, all the people are standing around going, woo, payday has come. And, and, And Elisha says, no, stop. Tie the ropes up. Shut the boxes of treasure. Keep it. It's, we don't want a penny of it. And Naaman's confused. But, but, but I brought these for, for you. And he says, salvation is a free gift. It's free. That's what the Bible tells us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God says, I have a free gift for you today. And it is yours if you will simply humble yourself and take it. Back when I was in high school, I came to faith in Christ about the age of 16. I had been raised Catholic, and I had a friend who was going to a Bible church in far north Dallas called Grace Bible Church. And so after I became a believer, I started to go to that church with him. And it was a very affluent part of North Dallas. If you're familiar with the area, it's up off Inwood Road. Uh, there were all kinds of rich and famous singers and athletes and others who lived up in that area. So this, you know, this was a, a pretty affluent church. And I went in there as this, you know, snot-nosed 16-year-old kid who didn't have a whole lot of anything. But we would do evangelistic outreaches into this community as high schoolers. And one of the things that we did was we would put out signs on Inwood Road that said free car wash because the church was right off this, this busy intersection. And people would, would pull in, and I mean, it was, you know, BMWs and Porsches and Mercedes and all these nice cars, and people would pull in. It's funny, people with all this money were like, free is good. So they'd come in to get a free car wash and... Um, There we were as students, we'd wash their cars and there were others that had a refreshment area they could sit down and get some cold water and some cookies. And people, while we were washing their cars, would be sharing the gospel with them. And we would say, well, you know, just like the car wash is free, God has a free gift for you, eternal life. And they were kind of a captive audience. You know, we 
take our time cleaning their cars. Well, I'm up for the next car, and the next car that pulls in is a Rolls Royce. And so here I am going, wow, a Rolls, I've, I've heard about these things. And so I start washing this guy's car. Well, first he pulls up, and we, we have him pull in here, and I say, sir, uh, you know, we want you to go over here and, and have some refreshments, and uh, we're going to take good care of your car. And, you know, it's, he says, well, how much is it? No, it's, it's free. Well, yeah, I saw the sign, but how much is it? I said, no, it's free. It's a, it's a free gift to you, just like God's free gift of salvation. And he looks at me like, yeah, okay, kid, what's the angle? So he goes and he sits down. Well, I finish washing his rolls as well as some of the other students. And, and he comes walking over and he goes, he pulls his wallet out and he says, okay, kid, how much? And I said, no, sir, it's free. It's a, it's a free gift just like God. He says, yeah, yeah, that's what they said over there. But nothing in life is free, son. How much? And I said, no, it's a free gift to you just like God's gift of salvation. Now, this guy looks at me and he smiles and he says, kid, I'm going to teach you a lesson in life. He says, nothing is free. And so he pulls a $50 bill out and he hands it to me and he goes, here. Now, this was the 70s, and those of you who lived through that know that working as a teenager, that was more than two weeks full pay at the fast food restaurant I was working at. So I'm standing there looking at this $50 bill. And I said, uh, sir, it's, it's a free gift to you, just like God's gift of salvation. I'm trying to remind myself of that as I'm <laughs> looking at the $50 bill. And he looks at me, and he puts the 50 back in his wall, and he pulls out 100 And he says, son, nothing in life is free. And by now, everybody has stopped, Right? <laughs> Everybody's kind of watching, Roger. The youth leaders are going, don't take the money, don't take the money. And, and I, go, I go, I'm sure my voice sounded like I was going through puberty again as I squeaked out, salvation is a free gift of God, just like the car wash. And he tucks the hundred and he pulls the entire wad out. I don't even know what was in there. And he holds it out to me and he goes, son, nothing in life is free. And I said, sir, it's a free gift to you, just like God's gift to salvation. Well, he reaches over and he undoes his diamond-studded Rolex. And he holds it out to me with a smile on his face. He said, here, kid, this is for you. And I said, sir, I can't take that. It's, it's a free gift to you. And he goes, yeah, I've heard all that look. He says, do you know what this is worth? This is a, a real Rolex. Those are real diamonds. He says, take it. That and the wad of money. And I said, sir, the gift of God is more valuable than any of that. You keep it. God wants you to have his free gift. And he looks at me and he goes, are you for real? And I said, yes, sir. Well, he puts his watch back on. He stuffs his money in his pocket. And he said, I think I need to know more about this. And he walks over and he accepts the Lord. As we read this story today, it's hard for us to put ourselves in the position of what is happening. We're going to come back next week and look at one of the servants, Gehazi, who sees the riches and decides, I want that. But Elisha, who has the opportunity to suddenly be rich beyond any imagination, says, there is something more valuable than all the stuff you brought with you. 
And he said, it is the gift of God. And he says, when you get home to Aram and everybody says, what happened? What did it cost? He wants Naaman to be able to say, it was free. It cost absolutely nothing. Elisha wanted God to be worshipped, which was far more important than the wealth that was offered. And that's what Naaman plans to do from what you see in verses 17 through 18. And Naaman said, if not, that is, if you won't take my riches, at least let me be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there. And he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Now you see, in the ancient world, they believed that a God could only be worshiped in his own land. They thought the borders were where control of God's ended. And so what he says is, as a new believer who doesn't understand fully how God truly works, he says, let me take back a couple dump truck loads of dirt so I can pour it out there in my house and I can stand in the land of Israel when I'm in this foreign country and I can worship the true God of Israel. And he says, now listen, you know I'm the bodyguard of the king. I have to go with him when we go into the pagan temple. And he says, may God forgive me of this because I can be killed if I don't go with the master, my master, the king. So he says, when I'm in that pagan temple and it appears that I'm worshiping this pagan God, I want you to know that internally in my heart and my mind, I'm worshiping the one true God of Israel, not this pagan God of the land. Here's a man who had turned to faith in Christ the Christ he didn't yet know, the the Messiah that would come through the nation of Israel. He had turned to the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And he says, I'm still learning all about who he is and what all this really means. He says, but I want you to know that externally my life will be reflecting certain things I can't change, but internally my life has changed. Friends, some of you here today need to be like Naaman. You may need to humble yourself today and receive by faith the free gift of God. You've been spending your whole life thinking, I've got to be good enough. I've got to work hard enough. I've got to earn my way to God. And what God says to you is, no, there is a free gift, a free gift of salvation through my son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay that penalty of death for you. And all you have to do today is humble yourself to receive it. If you've never done that before, I invite you today to turn to faith in Christ, to say to God, God, I am a sinner and I need your son in my life. As I begin this new year, I want to start my walk with you. Some of us here have come to faith in the past, but we've, we've turned away from God. And as this new year begins, it is an opportunity for us to once again say, God, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to turn back to you and I'm going to walk with you. I want us to end now in prayer. I want to give you an opportunity just to turn to God. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, it's your way of telling God that today you're accepting his free gift. What I'm going to ask you to do is just say to God, God, I'm a sinner. And I recognize as a sinner, I owe a penalty. The penalty of sin, the Bible says, is the wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God. But Jesus came and he paid your penalty. He paid it in full and he offers you a gift today. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. If you'd like to receive God's great gift to you, I want you to pray this prayer with me now. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I recognize that I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I owe a penalty. A penalty of sin called death. I thank you, God, for your great love for me, which was demonstrated in your willingness to come and take my place on the cross, paying that penalty of death that I owed. Lord Jesus, I thank you for that free gift that you offer to me. There's nothing I can do to buy it. There's nothing I can do to earn it. But what you ask me to do is to humble myself and acknowledge my need for you, and I'm doing that today. I'm turning from my sin and to you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Thank you, God, for that great gift of new life that you've given to me. Help me, Lord, now to begin to walk with you. May I grow in my knowledge and understanding of you, and may I serve you joyfully the rest of my life. I pray these things in the name of my new and precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, there are leaders at the front who would love to talk with you. I'll be standing here. For the rest of us who have received God's great gift of new life, may we go into the world and share the good news of what God offers to them and that we've received. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.